I did my graduate work at the University of Oklahoma. And so I went to a lot of Oklahoma City Thunder games in the 2011-2012. And uh, I saw there that they had renovated the stadium to accommodate the Oklahoma City Thunder coming in. They had spent $121 million to renovate a stadium arena that was only six years old. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. There's no debating that professional and amateur sports have a lot of power in the U.S. It is firmly ingrained in our culture, and that's kind of an understatement. It's normal during the NFL season for televised games to routinely dominate the top 10 shows of all kinds that are viewed in any particular week. We love our sports. We bleed team colors. We wear their jerseys. And we adjust our lives such that watching a game on our own big screen, it's pretty much the only linear television we watch at all. Our guest today is Dr. Branley Stitzel, or Lee as we know him, sports economist and associate professor of economics here at WT, and also host of Econ Buff, his own podcast that you can find over on YouTube. While there are myriad topics we could discuss, uh, we're just going to focus on only a few. I do want to keep this under four or five hours, Lee, just to be on the safe side. Lee, one of the most contentious subjects in pro sports these days has to do with the stadiums in which teams play. There's a decided preference for newer and bigger, and in just one sport, baseball, it's kind of rare to see a stadium more than 30 years old still being used. Out of 30 teams, two stadiums date from more than 100 years ago. That would be Wrigley and Fenway, the two coolest stadiums, I think. And three were built in the 60s, but that leaves 25 other stadiums that are much newer. These pro teams have amassed such power that they feel emboldened to extort hundreds of millions of public dollars from cities to build new stadiums. And if a city can't or won't come up with the dough, well, hey, the team will dance with a different city. Uh, Just recently, the Oakland A's announced they were heading to Las Vegas and The Milwaukee Brewers have made it known they too want a new stadium or else. Oh, and even the Chicago White Sox are hinting about these things. What's up with this and how did these teams get so much power? That story actually goes all the way back to the Brooklyn Dodgers. So it used to be teams didn't move at all, right? And then all of the sports teams basically are out on the East Coast. You've got changing demographics. Uh, The economy is just you know, completely going westward, right? And then the Brooklyn Dodgers end up moving to Los Angeles. And this completely changed the landscape of how sports teams related to their host cities. So what a league does, the principal thing, especially in a professional league, what they principally do is limit the amount of teams that are in the league. And I'm sure we'll get into this a bunch more as we go. But part of the reason for that is so that in a marketplace that that team has its market power. And that is an enormous benefit to those teams. So once the Dodgers moved, you know, before before that happened, there's essentially no movement at all. After that, you know, 19 pre 1970, there's maybe 80 new stadiums. 
um, from 1970 to 19, uh, I'm sorry, to 2020, there's 135 new stadiums. So you mentioned, for example, there are barely any stadiums that are 30 years old. The during that window, the average replacement age of the stadium was 27 years. So, so they get to 30 years and then it's time to replace them. And what that's led to across the four major North American professional sports, that's about two and a half stadiums being built per year. And of course that fits with sort of our current time schedule, seeing the, the rollout of new NFL stadiums in particular, and of course announcements for different, um, different basketball arenas, right? So, uh, Oklahoma City, for example, they move into Chesapeake Energy Arena with the renovation there in 2008. And then just this past month, they announced that they're going to build a new stadium that's going to keep the Oklahoma City's thunder there uh, through 2050, I think. So why, why is it that there's so much power for teams? The reason is there's a limited number of teams and cities want to have them. That's what it boils down to. A good example of where we see this is the St. Louis Rams, right? So there's a long history of football in Los Angeles. Los Angeles ends up moving to St. Louis for exactly all the reasons that we're discussing today, new stadium and they wouldn't pony up. Uh, Oklahoma City moving out of Seattle and the NBA is a good example of that. Lots of good examples. Well, it, it becomes a puzzle after a while. Why is there a team in St. Louis and not one in Los Angeles? Like there should be a professional football team in Los Angeles. The reason is they're holding out to get these stadiums, right? And so we see the new SoFi Arena built there. That's the most expensive stadium built, at least in the United States. I guess overseas, there are probably some that rival it. Um, but it's that market power and the fact that there's a limited number of teams to go around. Is, is there a magic population size now i mean i know there are outliers like oh green bay for example i mean that's a small city and yet they're steeped in football history even pittsburgh's not that big and they've got lots of pro teams playing there but it would be hard now i bet for i don't know i'm gonna pick a million is that is that a reasonable magic number uh, above which you need to be to get a consideration yeah so Green Bay is kind of a special case, right? Because that's one of the oldest, most legendary professional sports teams ever, let alone football. And it varies across the sports. So a smaller host city for a NBA team is more viable than for MLB or, or NFL. And so that's why we typically see those are not in terribly small cities. Now, I mean, you got Nashville and there's some, there are some smaller cities that are hosting hosting professional teams, but a million actually is a really good kind of approximation of the cutoff if you start looking. Um, and then one of the things that is really important is it's not just the population of the city that you're in. It's also its market size, its television market size and geographic proximity. So Oklahoma City, for example, has an NBA team. You've got the, the Mavericks not that far away. But Oklahoma City is also pulling Tulsa, for example. And so what matters in a lot of cases is what the geographic spread and what the different population centers in the area. So you could have a team in a smaller city if that is also being supported by a lot of population that's not, um, that's not being pulled into other teams. So when you move a team, right, um, you mentioned Oakland, for example, it's a good example of this because you have San Francisco right across the bay. And so these two teams are kind of always on top of each other's toes a little bit in terms of the market. 
that's a factor in moving them to Las Vegas. I, I can't help but think also of the Tampa Bay Rays, uh, originally known as the Devil Rays, but they got rid of the Devil. But they've never played in Tampa. They've always played in St. Petersburg. And the, the, the placement of the stadium is about the absolute worst you could ever want for a pro team. It's tucked down at the southern tip of St. Pete, which is a peninsula on the west side of Florida. It's hard to get to. And the Tampa fans, they just don't want to cross the bay and, and all go through all that traffic to get to a game. And then they wonder why they can't get anybody, to, you know, any attendance there. They wind up, I've been to a lot of Tampa games where we got in for like five or 10 bucks because they, they just wanted warm seats or warm bodies in seats to make it look like somebody was there. But my brother tells me they actually use l large curtains or draperies, whatever, to close off the upper deck so it doesn't look so empty. And, and now they're talking about building another stadium in St. Pete. What are they thinking? That's interesting because there's been a lot of talk about trying to do something unusual in that situation. They've talked about splitting the Tampa team between uh, Tampa Bay, St. Petersburg, and Montreal, right? Because there was a very successful franchise um, in Montreal, the Expos, for a long time. And so I think there's a lot of desire in that city to have their team back, not unlike um, not unlike the Oklahoma City case that we talked about before. You know, Oakland's losing all of their teams. There, there's going to be a desire there to have those teams back. We'll see if that ever happens. Um, there are just some weird political forces at play that keep things from being designed and driven optimally in a lot of cases. Where you want to place a stadium is a is a very tricky thing because what you want to do to maximize the benefit is to put the stadium in a place where it interacts with the the dense part of the local economy, like the central business district, downtown, those kind of areas. You don't want to be out in the suburbs. You don't want to be out uh, between two two city, you know, when you've got like a, a Dallas Fort Worth kind of thing, right? Like being out between those two is inferior to being in, in one of those big metropolitan areas. Um, and there's lots of interesting examples that we could compare and contrast the location. Um, but then that becomes very expensive to do, right? Because you've got these issues where the closer you move to downtown, typically the more expensive that it is, which is why we see a trend over time. Teams start in the center they move out toward the suburbs, we get redevelopment projects for downtown areas and they move teams back. And so um, I can't speak to the specifics, obviously the Tampa St. Pete thing, but this is a common theme in sports economics and what, what we're studying about uh, stadium location. My, my take on the Tampa situation is if they built a stadium along Interstate 4 between Tampa and Orlando, they would not have any attendance problems because they could draw off of two major metro areas that combined have about 6 million people as opposed to being down on the far far reaches of just one of them. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was saying a moment ago. It, it's not just which city am I in and what its population is because we live in an economy that's extremely mobile and so you need to factor that into account. If I can have fans from Orlando and fans from Tampa, that's that's going to be a big win. Yeah. So it seems to me, though, that some of these cities just allow themselves to be played. Is having a pro team worth that much money? I mean, does the city ever really get a return on all this money or do they just 
kind of chalk it up to, you know, the prestige of having a, a home team, maybe the quality of living, you know, something they can brag about. What are your, what are your thoughts on this? So the reason that cities get played, uh, the way that you framed it there, uh, is, is really a factor of two things. One is like what we call a race to the bottom. There's only so many teams to go around. And so we can play cities off of each other. If we're the NFL, okay, you do want NFL franchise or not, then the way that you pay to get a team is by building a stadium. That's the game that we're playing to attract. So a good example of this, I was, I was talking with a colleague and they said, you know, why would a city like Amarillo build a stadium to attract a minor league team? They don't, they don't agree to pay for a movie theater, right? We have the Synergy movie theater here in town. Well, the reason for that is you can put a Synergy in every city, but there's only so many minor league teams to go around. And so now Amarillo is competing with Lubbock or whoever else. I mean, in that case, actually they're competing with quite a wide geographic region. And so there's many cities that might like to host that. How do you do that? You agree to pay and build the stadium. The other thing is, there's a very unusual situation with teams and stadiums is that it's an all or nothing situation, right? We, you can't go and buy whatever quantity you would like. Either you have the team or you don't have the team. And that's an enormous expenditure, obviously. And so these two factors really come together to kind of put cities in a situation where there's no in between. Either we're sort of getting played as it were, or we're all the way out there. There's sort of no, there's no uh, middle ground there. Well, in the case of Amarillo, I'm glad we made the cut when MLB trimmed the number of minor league teams. I mean, they slashed and burned about 40 teams there all at once. And I know there were some nervous people uh, wondering if that new stadium was going to go vacant all of a sudden. But anyway, and, and well, one of the factors in which ones got cut is the kind of support that they have from their city. So building a new stadium is virtually going to guarantee also Amarillo's is a double A so you're getting fewer of them cut than you are lower levels of the of the systems. Yeah. And and of course, congrats to the Sod Poodles on another championship. Pretty good, huh? Yeah. Texas League champions. Yeah. Twice in four years. Yes. 2019 and 2023. Yeah. So. yeah. And you can't even you gotta deduct one for the COVID year or so. Yeah. So not bad. Not bad at all. Uh so when it when a pro team does try to extort these monies. Is there any risk to them of hurting their own reputation? I mean, I've heard the fans from Oakland, all, all 10,000 of them, God bless them. Uh, they're not exactly happy about things and they probably won't be making the drive to Las Vegas to see their old team. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about reputational effects, I don't think what they're concerned about is the local fan base because you're trading one fan base for another. They're going to get fans in Las Vegas, and that is, that's gonna work out for them in that sense. And as you said, if you're making this move, Oakland to Las Vegas, you're looking at probably getting more in terms of a fan base. You know, if you're moving from Los Angeles to St. Louis, maybe then you're more worried about it. But it's, it's just not a big factor in terms of what their local reputation is, if you will. What you don't wanna do in that situation is damage the brand, right? You don't want the TV market, especially an NFL team, uh, right. So much of your revenues are based on national broadcasting revenues. You you don't want to end up in a situation where you damage the brand nationally. Now, even that is a little tricky, right? Because there's room in sports for the bad guys too. And so there's 
you can kind of create a distaste where, oh, here's a billionaire owner who's, you know, money grubbing with the city. And, and that's kind of one of those things that's always this kind of discussion is people intrinsically feel like this is billionaires fighting with millionaires over money and the rest of us are just kind of pawns. So I think that's kind of inherent to the situation and I'm sure it's factoring in almost not at all. Why can't more old stadiums be brought up to modern standards? I mean, you mentioned earlier this century, Oklahoma City making upgrades to welcome the Thunder, but now they're just going to go ahead and build a new stadium because that that other one is so old now. You know, I, I grew up in Chicago. I I have frozen at Soldier Field before. Oh my God, is it cold down there by the lake? You know, you factor in the wind coming off the water in November and it it is bone chilling. Um, but that was long before they started adding stands and making it look like it landed from outer space. Um, why don't we do more of this? And, and um, yet the bears, they're likely to wind up out in Arlington Heights, way out on the northwest side. Why, why can't we, uh, you know, make some renovations and make these things still usable? There's, there's two basic answers to that. The first thing is when a team gets a new stadium, what they really care about is special seating, luxury boxes, club seats, and then the amenities that are happening in the stadium. And so that requires an enormous infrastructure. The difference between the haves and have nots in terms of new stadium is a 40 fold difference. And that's in the NFL in the NBA and MLB it's 20 fold. So it is very important to have a new stadium. I, I think sometimes maybe we look at these issues and we think, Oh, you know, this is just some, some marginal effect, these huge revenue. No, I mean, it is, it is the thing for teams. It is why that they are pushing for newer, nicer, bigger, more special seating. That's what they want. So if you're a team that just renovates, you're missing out on, on being part of the club that's in, in that upper tier of revenues. The other thing is stadiums and when and why they get built, it, the interests of the league and the team dovetail nicely with local politicians. And this is an econ, what we call public choice. So if I'm uh, a mayor or an important political figure in a city, it just sounds a lot nicer to say, I'm going to build you a new stadium. So go look at Mayor Holt, Oklahoma City, and is just running all the news stories about how they're going to build a new stadium. It just doesn't have the same ring to it to be like, we're going to renovate Soldier Field, mm -hmm. right? So that's a huge part of what's happening is there's a big an NFL team is not going to settle for a renovation because that isn't going to do the trick in terms of their revenues. And there's not much incentive for local politicians to push for the cost savings that that would give you because that doesn't benefit them in terms of, you know, reelection or their legacy or whatever it is they care about. I'm thinking of the uh, Texas Rangers. I mean, I went to that, their, well, their old stadium. I'm using air quotes here. Um, shortly after it was built, I mean, I, I've been here a while, but that was built after I got here. And, and now it's just kind of sitting there because they got a brand new one with a retractable roof right next door. I mean, they retired that stadium pretty fast. I know it's still used for some sports and, and other activities, and it's got uh, branding, uh, you know, it's got naming rights for a, a casino in Oklahoma, but it just seems like there's a lot of waste going on here, although that retractable roof is a pretty good idea when it's 110 in Dallas. 
I, I'm a Rangers fan, and uh, I love the old Rangers ballpark in Arlington. Um, I, I never been to Arlington Stadium, the first one that was out there, so so I don't have any nostalgia for it. But the the new stadium there is a prime example of what you're talking about, right? This is and right. This was built completed right before the 2020 season, and so they ended up using that for playoffs because it had an unusual playoff structure in 2020 where they they did sort of like instead of the each round of the playoffs being hosted by the home team they actually hosted sort of those at host sites and the ranger stadium was one of those and that's exact that's exactly the example that you want to keep the rangers in arlington and so they build the stadium there and then to get an enormous amount of amenity so if you've been to the new stadium you mentioned the roof this is obviously the big one right which there's some sense in that you're, you're playing baseball in 108 degree weather i've been to those games outdoor and that definitely takes something away from the game uh and then you've got restaurants in there you've got uh different like play areas and clubs and all kind of things that are in there that are, that weren't in the old stadium and so that's exactly the kind of thing that teams are targeting to get out of the new stadium and is it safe to say that the fans kind of expect that too? I mean, I've been to enough games in Wrigley and then, of course, the old Comiskey Park, the South Side, where the Sox played. Oh my gosh, those were those were antiques. You know, they still are. I mean, they don't have the restaurants. <laughs> I mean, they. I'm, I'm not going to you know go into bathroom humor or anything here, but it was it was a very different experience in the old days as opposed to you know even just a modern restroom today. It, it, night and day difference. And yet, I guess uh, Fenway and Wrigley, they, they are, they're able to cling on just because of the nostalgia. People want to see what it used to be like. So I'm a baseball purist. I'm like a baseball junkie, watch all 162 games in the season kind of guy. When I go to a baseball game, one, I do want it played outside because I think it has a different sound and a different feel, different smell. I like real grass. Mm -hmm. I like hot dogs and 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 drinking a soda with my hot dog and eating some some peanuts but i don't think i'm a representative consumer the people that are going to professional sporting events it's it's an evening out right it's a chance to i'm going with friends and i'm doing something and i'm seeing something and if the team wins good but how many of them know oh this guy's a rookie and that guy's an mvp candidate not many and and even to the extent that they know that that's just a part of the experience so I, I think what professional sports probably has gotten really good at is changing the product into something that's appealing to a broader base of people. And so we're trying to say, this is what you want to do. This is a place to be on a Friday night. This is the thing to go do on a Saturday. And so what you're talking about, the amenities of the stadium, they're closely related to that, right? Who's going out with their friends and be like, hey, let's go sit at 2.30 on a Saturday afternoon in 108 degree weather and, and watch this game. They're not doing that. Right. They are going to much prefer being in a nice environment and having lots of amenities available. You mean like a, an air conditioned skybox that even, uh, I don't know, a Taylor Swift would like? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. OK, I, I get it now. How, how do cities fund these initiatives? I mean, it's not like big corporations are lining up to pay for them, although they're more than willing to write fat checks for naming rights. How do these things get paid for? So. There's an interesting trend in that, right? You have an era sort of early on when the teams are building their own stadiums. And then about 
peaking in 1970, you've got 100% of stadium costs are borne by the public in that situation. But there's actually been a trend away from that. So now this is what we call the public-private partnership era, where it's it's trended down towards about 50% starting in the 2010s. Now, as you would imagine, that's been commensurate with a very high increase in the cost and the expense of the stadiums to build. So in 1970s, the stadium cost you 100 or 200 million to build. Uh, now we're looking at billion dollar stadium. So far, it was $4 billion to build it. So teams are um, using a variety of tax, you know, putting out bonds and stuff like this. I'm sorry, I said teams. Cities are doing that. And then teams are coming up with their money, the owner or the team or investors or lots of, you know, like you said, corporations that want to be involved in the naming rights and stuff. The naming rights, I, I should remember these numbers better off the top of my head. Um, they're big money, but they're not big money relative to the stadium. So like a lot of times a um, a naming right will cost you 20 or 40 million for 20 years, something like that. Uh, it's probably a little bit more in recent years, but that's not offsetting the cost of a billion dollar stadium. So basically it means that a, a significant portion of the bill is going to be footed by the taxpayers yeah. one way or the other. Maybe it's going to be increased sales taxes, mm -hmm. maybe property taxes, whatever. Yeah. As long as a city can cobble together the money. Well, or to just taking it out of the general fund, right? Well, that too. Um, and I can see how some folks might think it's patently unfair to do this because, you know, it's just like, you know, you, you pay your local taxes that go to fund your parks and rec department. Uh, and it might include things that you don't use, like the, you know, the public pools or the, the city golf course or things like that. But um, it's it, quite another when it's a big stadium that many thousands of citizens may actually never step foot into it for a variety of reasons. Maybe they just don't like pro sports. Maybe they can't afford it. So there's basically three reasons that a city would try to have a sports team, right? One is there's, they think of it as a public good. It has benefits, uh, you know, that are going out to consumers, um, talking about the city, team pride, city pride, putting the big, the city on the map, these kind of things. Um, and then uh, externalities, right? So we build a stadium and yes, you don't like baseball, but it gives a boost to the economy. And then third, and I think this is the only one that really is borne out in the literature, is that this is just an amenity to the city, which is kind of the area that you're talking about. So when economists look at this, you know, the intangible public good benefit, there might be a little there. There's a paper in the literature that estimates having an NFL team um, in the I think that's studied in the Pacific Northwest is worth about the same to people as a week more of sunshine. Is that a lot? Is that a little? I don't know. That's kind of a interesting way to frame those things against each other. The econ literature then is very robust. There is, there just is not positive economic effects, not in income, not in employment, not in sales, not in tax revenues, nothing. And in fact, some of, some of those are negatives. So the income literature, for example, shows that there's actually a negative to the local income when you bring in a team. Employment, sometimes there's small positives depending on when and where, and there's just um, the winners and losers sort of balance out in sales. So because of that, 
the the real way to think about whether it's worth it to a city like what you're talking about is is this an amenity that we want our tax dollars going to and so it could be well i agree we we get a team we build a stadium we attract a team and i'll build you a golf course you never come to the stadium i never go to the to the golf course and there's kind of this trade off right civic centers and and performing arts centers and parks and right so what happens is in econ right we have a theory called uh, the tibu model and the tibu model is different cities can create different combinations of the tax burden along with what they're offering policy wise or in this case amenity wise to the to people and then they can move okay would i rather be in a city that has no public parks has no team no stadium nothing none of this but i have a lower tax burden or do i want to end up in a city where i have major sports teams and performing arts centers and parks and golf courses then what's interesting to me is the answer seems to in almost every city be universally that we'd rather have those things than have the lower tax burden at least here in amarillo where our hotel occupancy taxes were used uh, to build Hodgetown for for the sod poodles. Local taxpayers are not on the hook for that. It's the tourists who are. So every time you rent a hotel room or rent a car, you're paying, oh, I don't know, another, what is it, eight or 10%, I guess, on top of normal state sales tax. And so uh, that money is limited what it can be used for. It has to be used to promote the city in one way or another. But a stadium was deemed promoting the city because it would attract people from out of town. It's just that I can't imagine uh, like, oh, a city like even Las Vegas. Well, maybe maybe we shouldn't use Las Vegas. It does have a huge tourist base. Let's say St. Louis. Would they have enough hotel occupancy tax to justify paying for a new stadium or how about Oklahoma city? You know, how are they paying for it? So, um, Oklahoma city is interesting, right? Because that is, that's a general bond that's paying for that one. Um, but even, even Amarillo, even if you are paying with hotel occupancy tax, there's nuances there with your tax policy. But at the end of the day, you're, you're still paying for it. That's, that's money that you could have spent doing something else. Opportunity right? cost. Exactly. Opportunity cost right where I'm going with this. And so you've got budget constraints uh, when and where you tap into any resources that are happening uh, within your city. And so it, it's not that Amarillo citizens are not paying for the stadium. It's that they're not paying directly in the taxes that are being collected from them. They're paying in other ways. They're paying in now there that's money that we could have used for something else or you could have not had that tax and then you could have had different type of economic activity in terms of travel and tourism etc so we're we're kind of paying for it in in a late 1960s era convention center and in in civic center yeah yeah i mean you still got the partridge family colors there <laughs> um and, that, and that's this, a great that's a great so just to clarify and expand on that a little bit so You've got a civic center in Amarillo, right? It's it's very old. It's it's very plain. It is not modern in any way. It hosts things regularly. I don't compared to other civic centers. I don't know if it's busy or not, but it it's not sitting there empty. And instead of rebuilding that, which has 
right? This is something that is being talked about in the public sphere here in Amarillo is rebuilding the Civic Center. We build a stadium. So you are paying for it. You're paying for it in the fact that you've still got an old Civic Center. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And, and we don't get good concerts, right? <laughs> right. So, so would Amarillo rather have minor league baseball or would it rather have, let's get a bigger, newer Civic Center that's going to attract better concerts and shows, et cetera, and that'll be a nicer environment or not have that and have lower tax burden in the city, right? There's a lot of things being traded. Lots of trade-offs there. So I, I've had many hallway discussions with uh, my economist colleagues uh, through the years, and probably a lot has to do with the fact that I had an econ undergrad. So this is my uh, my my favorite topic outside of marketing to talk about. I can always find something to hit on here. And and I have to wonder when it comes to sports teams and the stadiums in which they play, is there a price or a cost of doing nothing? In other words, saying, we don't want anything to do with this stuff. We're just not going to have a team unless the team can pay its own way. Is there is there a cost of doing nothing? Yeah, you won't have a team. I mean, bottom line, if, if you're not going to play ball, the, there are cities that will. And th there's no reason for any city to, to sort of, you, you can't have enough cities collaborate together. None of us in this area will pay for a team. And so then the team will go its own way. I mean, that's just not going to happen. Um, that goes back to the race to the bottom idea that I had, I had mentioned briefly. Okay. So then what does that imply, you know, for the local city? Well, on one hand, an economist like me is going to say, look at the literature. This is one of the most cohesive literatures in, in all of the field of economics where you just find universally there's just almost zero net effect of having a team. And there's reasons for that. These cities' economies are enormous and it's just not that big of an impact. It 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 feels, right, you, you mentioned earlier, we love our sports. They're always on the you know, top 10, you know, most viewed things going on in television. It's just not that big of a market. Your four major North American sports combined are a 20th of Walmart's revenues. It's those, those markets together are approximately the same size as the cardboard box industry. So you're, you're just not talking about, you're not talking about the scale of thing. I think that you think you are because sports has this outsized influence because of its share of sort of the, the, the culture, this share of advertising. It's just, it's enormous in those respects, but it, it's not as big as we think it is in our mind. It's, it's, it's played up much bigger than it, than it is in actuality. Well, I mean, advertisers have been hiring pro athletes to be their spokespersons for decades. And, and because these Sports heroes are larger than life. They're household words. Right. And they're, they're cultural icons and they have a very important place, you know, sociologically. I, I'm always a little interested. You can talk to people and they don't, uh, they're not going to know who a famous ball player is. Um, uh, somebody you mentioned, Taylor Swift, she'd be much, much more famous than the most famous ball player. So you have different categories and, TV, political figures, you know. So I'm definitely not denying that sports is important. And I think it culturally is much more important than it is economically. Do you think there's 
ever a time in the future we might find ourselves where the cities have more power than the teams? Because it seems like the teams are definitely in the driver's seat. They're the ones who can dictate the terms. We want a new stadium or else we're out of here. Um, it's it's a crazy, crazy scenario right now. Uh, just the the price of of a rookie player is seven hundred fifty grand. Now I know that the average career of a football player is three and a half years. So okay, the average person uh, is going to make um, just a little shy of three million dollars in four seasons if they can make it that long. After that, then free agency, then they're free to negotiate whatever they want, and then they can skyrocket into the millions. So basically, um, it costs a lot of money to own a team. And, and I read that the average NFL team is now worth a little more than $5 billion. But, hey, we don't see the teams coming forward to pay the, their own way for everything. They may be chipping in some, but in, in an ideal world, you would think they'd be just you know doing everything. But they get off without having to do that. If I look at a industry... I look at a particular corporation, right? And now corporate welfare is kind of in all industries, but let's imagine the most competitive industry possible. And then I look at the valuation of a firm that's going to reflect their profitability. The problem with sports is a $5 billion valuation is built on sort of this artificial standing of they've got the stadium and they're able to extract a certain amount from the host city. So these two things actually, they're not separate. Those those two things that you're talking about, pay or play is part of that. Um, you know, the valuation of the teams, the people that are involved on the ownership side, those things are reflected in the fact that we're in an equilibrium where teams can extract stadiums from cities, or at least now, you know, half the cost of a billion dollar stadium. That's part of what makes them valuable, right? Um, the other half of that, obviously, is typically related to like their TV broadcast revenues. So um, you mentioned that the average NFL valuation is around $5 billion. It wasn't that long ago when team's valuation would uh, first crack into the billions. And that was, you know, every week a story when the Dodgers did that and you have these teams. Well, a lot of that had to do with the team's valuation would make these big jumps when they could sign new TV contracts and stuff. And so, you know, what it is that a team is valued at is related to a lot of these factors, but you can't really set those two things apart and say, well, they're worth this. So why can't they pay for their stadium? The answer to that is if they're paying for their own stadium, they'd be worth less. And and what about the price of tickets? I mean, I, I Googled uh, how much it costs to go to a Cowboys game. Cowboys have the most expensive tickets in the league. And depending on which source you're reading, uh, the average ticket is between 245 and 361 bucks a game. And, you know, if you make this a, an outing for a family of four, once you factor in parking, which is not cheap, heck, um, we went to a preseason game. Parking was $60. That's crazy. $60 to park. Um, and then food and beverages and souvenirs. A family of four could drop 1500 bucks in one afternoon. That's, that's a lot of dough. Are, are pro sports pricing themselves out of the market or 
Or are they like Disney World and we really don't know what the top of the market is yet? Yeah, so the ticket prices, I think, are being determined by the supply and demand, right? This is what's happening in the market. And I think for a lot of us, we look at those numbers and go, how is this sustainable? It just doesn't seem like something the average person, evidence seems to say otherwise. Like these are very sustainable ticket prices are not jumping around all over the place. I'm I'm going to a game this weekend at Houston Texans versus Pittsburgh Steelers in Houston. And we got pretty decent seats. My brother's a big Steelers fan. I don't, I don't have a super affinity to either of these two teams. I want to go and be with my brothers. And we paid $400 a ticket. And it's like, this is the only NFL game I'm going to this year. I haven't been in years. I won't go again in years, I'm sure. But there are probably people out there that are paying this every weekend. You know, So NFL is an interesting case too. Uh, you have to remember, right, there's only eight home games uh, and then plus playoffs. And so those numbers are going to look a little different than if you look at like an MLB. My guess is MLB would be around a, a quarter of that, probably $75 or $100. Is your average ticket price? Um, I don't know basketball at the top of my head. My guess it would be in that same kind of ballpark. Um, but I think the answer to that is this is an experience that they're trying to create. That This is not the, let me just on a whim Tuesday night go to the, this is a thing that we're like planning and looking forward to. And, you know, you're arranging your whole fall schedule around when you're going to the NFL game. Uh, one of the things that all the pro leagues have relied upon is expansion, not just in, in expansion in terms of the number of teams, but also the expansion of the season, if you will, either the regular season or the postseason. Uh, you know, for example, the NFL a number of years ago wisely figured out how they could use a bye weekend to effectively make the season look like, feel like one game longer. And then they go to 17 games, uh, and but and the season technically spans 18 weeks. And basically, they've got an extra weekend of television with all those heavy-hitting advertisers paying money. And then I look at baseball. You know, here we are uh, in the fall here. We've got a 12-team playoff format now. We got teams with potentially mediocre records finding their way into the postseason. Um, but it's getting to the point now that it's possible that we could see a World Series toward the end of it played in the snow somewhere. I mean, they'll be shoveling the base paths. That's, that's just an insane proposition. But if they're playing somewhere in the north where they don't have a dome stadium, that could happen. I mean, how much more expanding can we do with this in terms of the season or the number of teams? Could we could we field 40 NFL teams or MLB and could we just play all year long? So this comes down to how you how you dilute your product. So what's useful about having a bye week is you get the same number of games, but you have it over more weeks and then fans are what you're losing every time you have some fans watching one game and not watching another. So if we spread them out over more weeks or right notice Monday night, Thursday night, etc. And then when college football kind of concludes their season before they go to the playoffs, the NFL kind of takes over Saturday. So you're spreading it out over more so you can get more eyes on each individual game, right? So you're they're not cannibalizing each other. You don't have competition. Uh, between the games. So that's what's happening there. Um, 
the the playoff idea is almost I don't want to say the reverse. What's happening there is the regular season builds up into the postseason. And by adding more teams to the postseason, we keep more markets interested for longer. And so why not have 12 teams when a marginal team that's now going to grab the third wild card, not only would they not be playing in October, they might have been eliminated halfway through September. So now there's less interest in their game. So you're trying to keep the interest going uh, there. So why not have an even longer season? Why not have year-round play? Why not have more games on them? That comes down to input costs, right? And so this diluting idea is kind of there as well. Um, and NFL players are just not going to be able to play 20 games. There's some number. I don't know what that number is, right? They go up to 18 games and 19, then 20. And you're going to start having your star players, especially the ones that aren't quarterbacks, you're going to have them breaking down. You're going to have, right? So you got to kind of balance, how do I get as much as I can out of this without completely diluting the product to where now my star players are hurt in the playoffs all the time because they just tried to survive 20 games in the regular season. So would, will we have 30, uh, will we go from 30 to 40 teams in the professional leagues? Um, I don't think that's likely. The way that we would get there if the sport becomes truly international. And the reason for that is the cities that are hosting now are the cities most equipped to support an NFL team. As we go, you're adding more and more marginal cities. So now we add an NFL team and we add them to um, you know, Portland and Richmond, Virginia. Well, what's the next two cities after that? So it's not, that's not going to happen unless they start adding Mexico city and London and they become much more international. When we come back, we'll take a look at the top level of amateur sports. And we're about to go into an even numbered year. And that can only mean one thing. The world stage is being prepared Blogs come in all shapes and sizes these days, and in more cases than not, it's just someone complaining about something. Rare Indeed is the blog that actually dives into the business and economics events of the day. Profspeak.com, the official blog of the Paul and Virginia Engler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, is just that. With a staff of seasoned and knowledgeable professors who write a new installment each week, it's not over the top like the others. It's on top of things. We'll look for you down at the corner of thought leadership and societal impact. Check it out at Profspeak.com and stay on top too. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT business degree in hand. For more info, find us at wtmu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. I remember back in 2011 when two other faculty and I led a study abroad trip to London. The city was getting ready to host the 2012 Summer Olympics and we were able to tour the village as it was getting close to completion. There were some hostilities in London town because many people were displaced when new venues and housing had to be constructed right where a lot of people were living, specifically lower income people. This was not a popular call. The Olympiad cost 15 billion dollars and ran 76% over budget. Yet the city was all in on this, no matter what it was going to cost. They saw those 17 days as a long play commercial for England. What are your thoughts on the fierce competition that cities mount to be, first of all, in the running for hosting an Olympiad and then having to pay for it all? Is, is it worth it? 
I, I'm interested that you brought up, is it worth it even to be in the running? Chicago spent $100 million in 2016 to bid and they lost. And that still cost them $100 million. So even, even applying is questionable. So why might we want to host the Olympics? Well, the short-term benefits typically come in three categories. If you engage in the construction, you might have a benefit to your economy through increased public projects. Uh, you're going to have tourism during the event, which in theory could be beneficial. And then the revenues directly from um, your sponsorships, tickets, licensing, and media. Now, the problem with that is these short-term benefits are a fraction of the cost to build. So you're, you're looking at, you quoted $15 billion to build, um, you know, for listeners who are not familiar with that, why does it cost so much to build that? You're building stadiums and roads and hotels and the infrastructure that you're doing this is to, to build this is enormous. It takes years, right? So we usually have uh, this host site picked out at least seven years before it happens because you need that much time to do the construction. So the problem is the direct revenues that are a fraction of the total cost. So you, need, you would need the construction and the tourism to really pick up a lot of slack. That's made even worse because the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, it controls these revenues basically arbitrarily. And the big ones, the television media rights, they share less than 30% of that with the host city. So even if they were taking all that, it'd be an iffy proposition. Um, if, if given that they're not sharing that, it, it, it just doesn't work on those sort of what we call direct benefits. Well, you mentioned seven years. That is, that's the typical lead time for uh, uh, going from bid to actually building out and playing. I, I remember being in China back in 2002, and already there were Beijing Olympics T-shirts being sold for the 2008 event. I mean, I had to do some checking. It's like, wow, the Olympics, it must be coming up soon. It's like, oh, no, it's six years out. They're just, they're just promoting it. Next year, we're going to see Paris as the home of the Summer Olympics. And two years after that, the Winter Olympics will be in Italy. Um, but it's rare for a site to be able to get two Olympiads within a few years of one another. But China pulled it off by hosting the 22 Winter Olympics. And, and we got, my daughters and I got to see the whole Olympic Village back in 2019. They were reworking, reusing, repurposing a lot of the 2008 stuff for 2022. That's great, but it's rare. Seems like in many cases, once the Olympics are over, those facilities are mothballed, they're abandoned. And in the case of London, the main outdoor stadium, they halved it. And I don't mean they cut it in half vertically, they cut it in half horizontally. They cut the top half off the stadium so that they could shrink the seating capacity to be more in line with what normally goes to see a soccer match. That's, that just seems so insane. They, they threw half that stadium away. Um, what's your take on all this kind of stuff? I mean, is this really just a, a, like a two-week advertisement for a city or nation or what? I mean, I'm scratching my head here when I see cities bidding on this right to spend billions of dollars. So I kind of talked about the short-term potential benefits and what you're talking about are, are the long-run potential benefits. And I see there's two 
bad and two good reasons to look at potential long-run benefits. As you mentioned, the facilities are a terrible reason to say we should go to the Olympics because then we'll have all this infrastructure. And not only the infrastructure of the facilities, because these are very unusual facilities because we have multiple problems, right? You can't just go into a big arena because they're not set up for track and field. And you can't just go to track and field situations because they're not set up to allow for the proper number of fans and for televising. That's why they have to build all the stuff new. And then you've got way too much infrastructure to host any local events, right? Like you, you can't just have the, the javelin throwers being out on an Olympic field, which is designed to host thousands of fans and, you know, have all of NBC's cameras around, right? Now, some people then argue, well, okay, the facilities themselves, but what about that infrastructure? What about the hotels? What about the um, roads, et cetera, that we had to build? Well, the main problem with this is there's no reason to believe that uh, infrastructure that I built uh, to host the Olympic Games would be any better than if I just did that as its own standalone project, because that standalone project would almost certainly fit our needs better. The problem with that then is you, you also build too much. So in some cases we see um, the host city having to build 20 to 40,000 more hotel rooms. And in some cases we see 40% of hotels after, after the games, we see them fail and go out of business. So it just completely disrupts the hospitality market. And in fact, probably destroys it. Now, those are the two bad reasons. The two good reasons, and you know, I'm using that word a little loosely would be one it can put some of the cities that are not paris on the map good examples salt lake they've had a 20 percent bump in skiing following the 2002 2002 winter olympics barcelona for example went from the 13th to the fifth most popular uh tourist destination in europe following uh when they hosted the games now that doesn't mean the local economy is necessarily benefiting from that. So just very quickly, uh, economists have studied, there's three or four different studies actually on Salt Lake, no impact on short-term things, taxable sales, hotel occupancy, airports, which you're saying, how could that be? Like those must've been absolutely bustling when they had the games. Yes, but then other people weren't coming to the city because the hotels and the airport were taken up. Um, you, we did see a $70 million bump in restaurant sales, but we had a $167 million decrease in general merchandise. So people are going and they're spending their money, but they're spending their money on food. They're not spending their money on other things. So it's a net loss for the city. Um, and then there's a little bump, about 4,000 jobs in Salt Lake City. So you, you can have kind of some short-term benefits, but uh, that's a very bleak picture for a $15 billion outlay. The last thing I'll say really quickly is uh, foreign direct investment. So it could be you do this and then the broader economy says, oh, that's a place to invest. Like Salt Lake, that, you know, I've heard of them. Let's, let's do business there. The weird thing about that is win or lose, there's a 20% bump in foreign direct investment in, in a city, whether you host or don't host, just if you apply, basically. So there's two possible reasons for that, right? One is, it could be that you apply and people are watching that. And that sends a very strong signal that the economy is good. Hey, look, we could host the Olympics. That's how good of an economy we are. And then people that weren't thinking about you go, oh, I should look for business opportunities there. The other, of course, could just be reverse causation. Maybe you were becoming a strong economy and that's why you went to host the Olympics. And so foreign direct investment was going to go up anyways. 
television and advertisers are also in love with the Olympics. You know, you mentioned NBC. They've, they've had a firm grip on the Summer Olympics since 1988, and they got the Winter Olympics in 2002. Um, advertisers, they don't have any problem ponying up big money each time around. They, they seem to be immune to the price hikes and more concerned about how miserable their corporate existence might be if they didn't have bragging rights to be the official whatever of the U.S. Olympic team. I, I can only imagine how much Coca-Cola shells out worldwide to be the official soft drink, not just for the U.S., but for many nations. They want to be able to put that logo on their cans and bottles and to advertise it and show their affiliation with it. They don't even question it. It's like, this is going to happen just like the sun is going to rise in the east tomorrow. What are your thoughts on that? If I'm a corporation and I want to capture emerging markets, I want to get into new places or do a lot more business in places that I'm sort of tentative, uh, tentatively in, what could possibly be better than the Olympics? I, I mean, is there anything that's on a global scale? I, I'm certainly not thinking of it. Maybe there are good examples of that. Uh, but the reach there is is just impossibly broad. So that's a no-brainer, I think, if if you're Coca-Cola, for example. Let's pivot here and look at some other sports played at the global level. Uh, last December, the FIFA Men's World Cup tournament was held in Qatar. December, why then? I mean, that seems like an odd time to be doing this because normally it's in the summer. But Qatar, you know, it's, it's a rich constitutional emirate. They shelled out 220 million bucks to have the world's eyeballs trained on it. But because Qatar is kind of hot in the summer, you know, being there on the Arabian Peninsula, they were able to influence a major calendar shift to have the tournament when temperatures were a little more reasonable, like December. It's just too bad that it disrupted the professional lives of many of the players who, who are in leagues back home. Like in Europe, they would normally be playing matches that time. And so everything got tossed up in the air like a big salad. Uh, what are your thoughts on such a major tournament? I could be polite and say being gobbled up. Uh, I could be sarcastic and say uh, it was hijacked by a country and forced to play by new rules. Calendar changes are extraordinarily rare. So you've hit on one of these ideas that's just this would be a thing if you'd asked a sports economist before it happened, they'd have been like, it can't happen. It's impossible. That's too big of a disruption to the fundamental nature of the sport. I mean, you just do not see calendar changes. In fact, a lot of uh, like burgeoning sports. Um, so I, I'm a big sports fan. I like a lot of quirky or, or lesser known sports too. I like a lot of strength sports, for example. One of the big topics of conversation in CrossFit, if you're familiar with that, is the calendar, right? Because they've got this season of events of off-season events and then the open and then uh, quarterfinals and semifinals and and regionals and then going up to the games. One of the problems that they face is they'd like to make a lot of changes, but there's so many different events going on, they can't change the calendar. So the fact that this happened is really astounding. And I think what it signals is, you know, this is big time business. And of course, you know, soccer is the pinnacle. Uh, and I think there's a little more flexibility in their schedule and the way that the sport is so international. Um, but that's that's just 
unheard of before. So that that is really a, a game changing event. Well, we we also have to talk on the issue of Saudi Arabia and their live uh, tournament for pro golfers. I mean, they spent two billion bucks to get this competing tournament and roster rolling. And believe me, you know, it caused a lot of consternation with the PGA. Uh, basically, the PGA was saying, if you if you jump ship and go with them, you'll never be one of us. And, well, some of the pros did jump because they were lured by fat paychecks. And then the unthinkable happened. Just recently, the PGA blinked and basically they caved. They, you know, they decided they're going to join forces with Liv, knowing full well that their coffers could and would be dwarfed by a nation that has more oil than we can ever begin to imagine. What about this juggernaut? So Saudi Arabia has a public investment fund that they specifically want to invest in sports. And I suspect this is just the first salvo there. And so critics uh, call this sport washing. So they're, they're money that you know, maybe has some dubious moral sources and they really want to kind of change the public, the global perspective on Saudi Arabia. So they want to then begin to attach themselves to different things. The The first thing that happened here is this live golf uh, tournament. And there were a lot of players and initially a lot of the people in, that were running the PGA Tour were saying we're never going to be a part of this. They were very firm against that. So the fact that it just flipped like overnight, I mean, this was a completely stunning thing that that the PGA uh, went and then merged. And of course, if you were a player that didn't go before, there's no there's no paycheck for you. You just go back to to playing golf. So the guys that defected were rewarded for that. And to me, that means when next time we see this the players are going to jump. There's there's no stopping it now be, because of the way that you incentivize the players to go to Saudi Arabian-backed leagues. Where do you think this is all going? Do you think more nations, rich Middle Eastern oil nations, for example, um, might get in on this and maybe want to buy up another sport? Like, could the NFL be co-opted and bought? Oh, I, I think it's almost likely. I don't... I don't know about the NFL necessarily, um, but why not NHL or something like that? I it's it's coming. I, I just can't. Golf is kind of uniquely positioned because you have individual players that are still high profile. You have lots of events that go on in different places, so maybe it's a little harder to get into a situation where you got a host city and a stadium and a team and a whole league built up in more geographically exclusive area. But oh yeah, this is coming. When we come back, we'll look at university sports here at home and also the latest fashion. It turns out that fashion is not dreads and tats. It's much bigger than any of those. West Texas A&M University has been in the education business since 1910, carrying on a tradition of teaching above all else. And while we made a strong effort to get ahead of the curve in 1997 with our online courses and programs, we never forgot our roots. That's another way of saying we're still rocking it old school with face-to-face -face classes. Our classrooms in the Paul and Virginia Engler College of Business are small by design so that you can actually get to know your professors and fellow classmates. It's an intimate learning experience and we offer undergraduate majors in 12 areas. We're double ACSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. 
reach for the stars and do it with a WT BBA degree in hand. For more info, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2525. From the Texas panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. As Americans were getting ready for the college football season, headlines grabbed our attention with what many considered the unthinkable. Major universities were jumping ship, leaving their conference home for the greener pastures of another conference. Dr. Stitzel, explain what the heck happened this year. So there are 10 big conferences in college football that are all part of the NCAA. And those are roughly grouped into the major conferences, which are called Power Five, and the lesser conferences, uh, smaller conferences, which are called uh, Group of Five. So what happened was, uh, what is this, two years ago now, University of Oklahoma, University of Texas end up going to the SEC. And there's other small changes prior to that and whatnot, but this is kind of the the shot heard around the world, if you will. And so this year we sort of had another round of that, but instead of just a couple of teams moving, so the Big Ten gets USC and UCLA to come to their conference, instead of it just kind of being two teams move and then stop, which is what we saw a couple of years ago with Oklahoma and Texas going to the SEC, this sort of tripped a feeding frenzy. And now the Pac-12 schools are all sort of uh, open for business in terms of conference realignment. And the reason for that is, especially the Big Ten and the SEC, but even the Big 12 and the ACC, they have good television contracts. They have good co- television contracts, and those expire at different times, which is a, a problem for the ACC. The Pac-12 doesn't have that. And so they are at the end of a television contract, and they're not getting on with traditional sources. So they're looking at um, streaming their games. And the the schools that were in the Pac-12 did not like that. They found that to be very risky. And, you know, it's also hard to recruit because telling a player you're going to get to play on, uh, I can't remember the streaming service now, Disney Plus or whatever, is not the same as telling them they're going to get to play on ESPN or Fox or so on, right? And so they really lost a lot of recruiting power and this hurt those schools a lot. Well, once USC and UCLA defected, then um, other schools, Oregon and Washington ended up going, uh, Arizona, Arizona State ended up coming to the Big 12. There are actually quite a lot of moves, uh, Colorado back to the Big 12, um, leaving, I think, only two schools currently <laughs> in the Pac-12, which are Oregon State and Washington State. Well, is it television exclusively then that would cause a university to basically divorce one conference and marry another? I mean, I mean, what about all the, the traditions and rivalries and all that? It seems like all that stuff would just be out the window. I, I think what people are doing at those universities is, is looking at the trade-off between what, what about the money that I'm going to get going to these different conferences, which is a huge motivation for what's happening. That's why Oklahoma and Texas moved. You know, they probably got 20 million more a year, something like they were getting around 30 million a year in the Big 12. They're getting 50 million a year in the SEC, which is why it made sense for them to buy out their last couple of years in the Big 12 for, I think, close to $100 million a piece. And 
um, similar to move from Pac-12 to to the Big Ten, and you know, getting in on these uh, TV contracts and the ability to go compete and play uh, for the college football playoffs. The problem with that is, you know, the conferences themselves, what they're not offering much more necessarily than the TV contract sort of combining together to be able to negotiate a TV contract, right? So there's nominally things about academics or something like that, but that just very obviously hasn't stopped anybody from moving conferences. So you mentioned the Pac-12. They're going to wind up with two teams. They're going to get real tired playing each other every weekend. What's going to happen to that conference? Is it just going to fold? Yeah, Pac-12's just gone. I, I, I'm i going to have a hard time imagining that the Pac-12 is going to settle for bringing on group of five teams and then sort of relegating itself to a lower tier. I, I think what happens in the long run here is we're going to morph into a version of the NFL. Probably you're going to have four big conferences with 16 or so teams apiece. You're going to have conference winners get into the playoffs and some kind of wild card system. Um and the group of five teams are going to be left behind. A group of five conferences are going to be left behind. I don't think the Pac-12 has a place in that world. Do you think this jumping around will settle down now since, you know, we they basically toss the salad? Or is this just the beginning of more to come? All the big and interesting moves are, are done. Um, there's just nobody left unless somebody gets poached out of right? They move and then move again. And I just don't see that happening. We'll have a little bit. Oregon State and Washington State are going to have to find somewhere to go. Um, the group of five schools that are a little stronger, they might move around. Like we saw uh, SMU, for example, go to the ACC, things like that. Um, but yeah, most of the moving and shaking is done. It, it- it seems like it's it's gotten to the point that conference names are just meaningless now. I mean, it's been many years since the Big Ten had 10 teams. Now it's got, what, 16 teams? So I know they've kind of come up with a stylized logo that they try to take a you know, little emphasis off the 10. But it, it just seems like the, the, the geography that used to be a big part of a lot of the conference names just doesn't matter anymore. And, um, and really, it... It's just they're acting like pro teams and and it all boils down to facilities, travel, all, you know, all the things that make this a lot more fun. I I have a friend in Kentucky who he drives buses. um, He hauls sports teams around for UK. And and I don't mean the yellow ones that the, you know, kids go to school and these are plush motor coaches. And he's either driving them to games long distance or or zooming on ahead to pick them up at the, the local airport and then be their, their in-town transportation. And, and it looks like from the pictures I've seen from him, looks like no expense is spared on this. These guys travel like rock stars. So what's in, the, in a name anyway these days with the conferences? And, and have, have we really just seen now the evolution of college ball to just be pro sports? Yeah, the... That's true for football. And I'd be curious to know in your story, if your friend at, at driving a bus, I, I imagine he's doing that for either men's basketball or, or men's football mostly. One of the things that's interesting, in addition, I, I think probably maybe the most interesting thing is the loss of these rivalries 
um, and how we're going to see those kind of things die. I think that's a really unfortunate thing for the nature of the sport because that's what college football has that professional sports doesn't. Um, there are rivalries, right? But they're not based in anything other than we happen to be in the same division. Like why else would the Eagles and the Cowboys or the Yankees and the Red Sox, like th they just have a history. Um, in college sports, you have a history and you have proximity and you've got Oklahoma State and Oklahoma or Oklahoma and Texas. You've got this geographic proximity that you alluded to earlier. The other problem with that is college football is not the only thing being played at universities. So now... Now I'm the uh, Northwestern women's softball team. And now I've got to go play Oregon and USC and UCLA. Um, am I flying first class? Is there a bus driving ahead to meet me there? Uh, you're putting a huge toll, I think, on the, the schools that are not, I'm sorry, the programs that are not college football. Maybe it's not such a big deal the way basketball get played because they can kind of do tournaments and different people hosting and whatnot. Uh, but some of these other sports, I, that must be a nightmare. Closer to home, we've seen some of our uh, former Lone Star Conference peers make the jump to D1 or are in the process of doing so. So names like Tarleton, Abilene Christian, A&M Commerce, and Incarnate Word, those are four that come to mind real fast. What do you think their motivation is for doing so? And do you think it was worth it? Because making the jump comes with a big price tag. Hard to say if it's worth it, but the reason that they're doing that is just growth mindset. I mean, the institutions are designed where they need to find somewhere to grow and in, innovate into. I mean, that's the nature of the way that we design institutions. These days. universities are no exception. That's why they're doing that. Um, you know, again, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with with public figures before, if you're the university president and you took Tarleton to D1, that's part of your legacy. That's, you know, and and who in the institution is going to say, nah, we should stay smaller. We should stay division two, right? Like those kind of voices are going to have a hard time winning in a lot of those. those. Uh, is it worth it bottom line? I, I doubt it, but, you know, hard to say. Do you think that WT will ever make a similar decision? I mean, 40 years ago, we were D1 and then dropped down to D2. I mean, we've got some pretty impressive football history at this school, but it just goes back a long way. And that all happened after an enrollment drop. And do you think we'd get a good return on an investment today by trying to go to D1, which would necessitate oh, lots of things, scholarships, facilities, travel, Lots of expensive things. Um, and, and do you think prospective students care about that or no? So uh, obviously I'm biased being both an alum and a professor here at WT. Um, so I have a very high opinion of us in many, many regards. Um, but the, the answer that an economist would give you would be if many of the peers that look a lot like you are jumping division one, I, I find it very likely that WT would eventually try to make a similar jump. Is that going to happen soon? I don't know. Uh, but if they're doing it, why can't we do it kind of answer? Yeah. Our guest today has been Dr. Branley Stitzel, sports economist and associate professor of economics. Lee, give us your best shot. Professional sports, the way that we know it today, will be dead by the end of our children's lifetime. 
You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is dean of the college. You can find us online at wtamu.edu cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff speak.